0: That's a fascinating thing about Trump now, that there's, there's a scrutiny of deals that were designed not to withstand scrutiny.
1: You're listening to Expert Opinions, Russia Eurasia, the Harriman Institute's podcast on Eurasianet.org. I'm your host, Masha Udensova brenner And the voice you just heard? That was Adam Davidson. He became a staff writer at The New Yorker in 2016, after working as the On Money columnist for The New York Times Magazine and co-founding NPR's Planet Money. The same year Adam started his new job at The New Yorker, Donald Trump was elected President of the United States. And, since Adam has devoted the bulk of his career to covering business and economics issues, it was only natural that he became curious about the business dealings of the Trump organization.
0: I really just found myself hearing a lot of stories. This was you know right before and after the election, about the Trump organization, and I, I was having a hard time picturing how did this work? Like how many people are involved, who were they calling, how just how how did this company work?
1: So he started looking into the Trump organization's various deals, which span the world from the Philippines to Uruguay.
0: For that story, I wanted to pick any country where I thought the deal would be interesting and worth investigating.
1: He ended up finding two such countries and writing two stories, and both of them examined deals that took place in the Caucasus, one in Azerbaijan and the other in Georgia. In the previous episode of Expert Opinions, you heard from two Columbia journalism fellows who helped Adam investigate his second story about the deal in Batumi, Georgia. Today, you'll hear my interview with Adam about both articles and what it was like for him to report in the former Soviet Union for the first time. One of the first things I wanted to know from Adam was why out of all the Trump Organization deals in the world, he'd picked two stories in the caucuses. He told me that it was a little bit arbitrary, that he'd looked at a bunch of deals the Trump Organization had done and first considered investigating one in Indonesia. Then, for various reasons, he became interested in the one in Baku, Azerbaijan.
0: It seemed particularly, sort of obviously, uh, a bad decision.
1: When Adam started his research, he needed only the slightest bit of internet sleuthing to discover that the Trump's business partners on the deal Should have immediately raised red flags for the organization.
0: Just seemed like, boy, no normal company would do business with such people.
1: Why did he? The people Adam's referring to are close relatives of Azerbaijan's transportation minister, Zia Mamadov. Zia is not your typical career government official. At the time of the Baku deal, his salary was only $12,000 a year. Yet, somehow, He was a powerful oligarch worth billions of dollars.
0: This is a man whose entire career was in government service. He lives in an enormous mansion, like an unbelievable estate, and then owns another unbelievable estate in another part of Baku along the beach. His son is reportedly worth a billion dollars based on a company he founded while he was living in London as a college student.
1: This part's important because Zia Mamadov's son, Anar, was one of Trump's partners on the deal. The company that he supposedly founded while living and studying in London as a late teen, it's called Zekan. Z Q A N. An acronym for all the names in Zia Mamadov's immediate family. Strangely enough, Anar, Zekan's purported founder and owner, barely set foot in Azerbaijan during the first few years of the company's operations, even though all the major business transactions were taking place there. Meanwhile, business was booming, and it was booming largely because of contracts with Azerbaijan's transportation ministry, the very ministry Zia Mamadov was in charge of. According to Adam's sources, It's been widely accepted by Azerbaijanis that while Anar is the official owner, his father, Mamadov, actually controls Zikan. In other words, the transportation minister owned a company that made huge profits off of the government ministry he was running. And his family didn't even bother trying to hide it because they didn't have to in Azerbaijan.
0: There is zero subtlety about corruption. It's just open and blatant and no question.
1: As a rule of thumb, most U.S. companies shy away from doing business in places where corruption is as rampant as it is in Azerbaijan. This is a precautionary measure, because if it's proven that parties you've done business with have participated in financial misconduct, you could be vulnerable to criminal persecution under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So for Trump to make a deal with openly corrupt partners like the Mamadovs, it was risky in its own right. But in this case, corruption was just the tip of the iceberg. Far more troubling were accusations that had been circulating against the family since 2010, four years before the Trump Organization publicly announced the deal.
0: It was known... At the time that they did the deal, you know, from WikiLeaks dumps that the U.S. government suspected them of supporting money laundering efforts of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and various other, you know, highly, highly corrupt and and illegal activity.
1: The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps grew out of Iran's 1979 revolution. Since then, it's been a part of the country's armed forces, the division dedicated to the protection of the Islamic Republic. Not only is it on the U.S. sanctions list, but it's also been accused by the U.S. government of drug trafficking, money laundering, and exporting terrorism. And the Mamadov's potential connection to the organization looks like it goes back to some time in the mid-aughts. But it didn't become public until 2010, when WikiLeaks released a series of U.S. diplomatic cables that revealed U.S. suspicions that the family was helping the Guard to launder money. So how much of this did the Trump organization know about at the time of the deal? Alan Garten, the company's chief legal officer, claims that it knew nothing, that in spite of hiring a due diligence firm, the organization did not find out about the allegations until 2015.
0: Even if that's true, that means that for the entire presidential campaign, that Donald Trump was knowingly in business, since he says, or his general counsel says they knew since 2015, and they didn't cancel the deal until 2016, the end of 2016 after the election, that for the entire presidential campaign, Donald Trump was knowingly in business with people who were laundering, probably, highly likely to be laundering money. Now, as it turns out, the WikiLeaks cable got a few names wrong, got a few details wrong. We were able to flesh out the details and identify who those partners were, what their relationship with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard seemed to be, it did make it, frankly, more upsetting.
1: The partners were an Iranian construction company called Azar Pasillo. Its chairman is this man named Kumars Darvishi, who used to be the head of Rahman, an Iranian construction firm controlled by the Revolutionary Guard. Then, during a period when Iran was looking for ways to send money abroad, Darvishi left Rahman to run Azar Pasillo, and he made a series of deals with Azerbaijan. Mamadov ended up hiring Azar Pasillo to help build several major roads, and he hired them at a cost much higher than the work was actually worth. This all sounds a little suspicious, and according to experts, Azar Pasillo is very likely to be a front for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Davidson stressed to me that none of this was difficult for him to uncover.
0: All of that information came from simply looking at websites and getting someone who knows Farsi to translate what was written on them.
1: So it sounds to me like the work you did was labor intensive, but it would have been pretty easy for the Trump organization to find out all this information before they closed the deal.
0: Yes, exactly. It wasn't even that labor-intensive, if I'm honest.
1: And how long did the whole investigation take you?
0: I mean, it, it ended up taking me three and a half months, working alone for most of that time with some help from, like, Farsi translators and stuff, and, you know, traveling to Baku, et etc. et cetera. Um, But, you know, the Trump Organization claims that they hired a due diligence firm to conduct due diligence. They wouldn't tell me who that was or share any of the information about that firm and um, so I I can't speak to that but you know many due diligence firm employees told me this would have been trivially easy to uncover this this was not hard stuff and and I've covered the global economy for for a long time and I've covered stories of rampant corruption and and also subtle corruption one thing that struck me in Azerbaijan and and with the Mamadov family in particular is it is not like other parts of the world where companies and individuals work extremely hard to hide their corruption. This was this was just out in the open. This was not there was there was minimal attempt, practically no attempt, to hide it. I mean, I don't want to put myself down. I want to say to you, I'm the best investigative reporter ever, and wow, I'm such a genius that I cracked all this. But but this this was not proof of that. This was simply proof that I looked at Google and hired a Farsi translator.
1: Davidson's research resulted in an article called Donald Trump's Worst Deal, which was published by The New Yorker in March 2017. Shortly thereafter, some Democratic senators wrote a letter addressed to then-FBI Director James Comey, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. The senators were asking for a government investigation into the Baku deal. Specifically, they wanted to know three things. one whether the Trump Organization had violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Two, whether the Mamadovs were indeed working with a construction company that was a front for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And three, whether the Trump Organization had violated U.S. sanctions laws by receiving payments that could be traced back to the Guard.
0: I am not aware of any response from the White House or any prosecution.
1: In general the Trump Organization's potential involvement with the Guard hasn't received much scrutiny.
0: I mean, to this day, I don't understand why that fact hasn't gotten more attention. I mean, you know, if you had asked me a year ago if someone discovered that the president of the United States had knowingly taken money from a company that was at the same time laundering money or likely to be laundering money for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, the entity in Iran responsible for building the nuclear arsenal, funding terrorism, and many other bad things, you know, you would think, oh, okay, well, that president would be impeached the very next day.
1: If someone were to open an investigation into this under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, how would they go about it?
0: So, I mean, the, the first thing a prosecutor would want to look at is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard money laundering, because that is... Um, what's called strict liability which means there is no requirement to show that the people knew that it was iranian revolutionary guard money if if you get money from the iranian revolutionary guard then you are guilty of sanctions violations even if you didn't know so you don't have to spend the time that prosecutors often have to devote a lot of time to to proving someone knew something. It's hard. It turns out it's hard to prove someone knew something um, unless you have an email specifically saying, boy, I know this thing. And usually people are smart enough not to write such things. Although Donald Trump Jr. has suggested maybe he, he does write things that he shouldn't write. So, so I would think that would be the juicy one. And you'd need to show that the specific money that Trump's got originated in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. So you'd have to show that You'd have to really prove that they were in business with the Mamadovs and that this money, you know, these millions of dollars directly came from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. That would be hard. The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act prosecution would also be very hard because, first of all, you would have to prove knowledge or at least what they call willful blindness, meaning if they didn't know, they should have known that there was ample reason to be suspicious and to... that you know, that they essentially took action not to know what was going on. So you'd have to deal with that. Then you'd have to show that there was a scheme to bribe a public official or enrich a public official or benefit a public official in exchange for something of value. I think that part would be fairly easy because you have this transportation minister basically expropriating government land, kicking a few citizens off their land to build the land for this project. So, so that's probably there. But then you'd have to show that the money that Trump's got came from that corrupt plan and that they should have known it. And that, that would be tricky. That's not trivial to prove. So if Trump were just some developer in New York who had done this deal, which he was, of course, at the time— it, it's very unlikely any prosecutor would pick this up. It's a very tricky case. You'd have to convince your bosses to fly you to Azerbaijan. You'd probably have to convince the FBI to go to Azerbaijan. Um, the Azerbaijani government wouldn't have any interest in helping you so and, and you know the FBI doesn't have subpoena power in Azerbaijan. It would be an extremely difficult case to prove, in an extremely hard case.
1: So in a sense, it's not really all that difficult to get away with violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act.
0: Well, look, in the U.S., there's something like 50 Foreign Corrupt Practices Act prosecutions a year. Most of those are what they call self-reports. So a big company discovers that some subsidiary somewhere had paid a bribe, and the, the large company reports it and then settles fairly quickly. So I'm willing to bet that there's a lot more than 50 cases a year of American companies bribing foreign officials. So the vast majority of cases are not prosecuted. And and that's because these are really hard cases to prosecute. You have to prove the trail of money. You have to prove knowledge all in a foreign country and, and often a foreign country that has zero interest in helping.
1: About two months after Davidson published his article on Azerbaijan, Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel of the Russia investigation. The ongoing probe inspired Davidson to look into another Trump organization deal in the post-Soviet region.
0: I was very interested in the idea that, that Russia and other countries in the former Soviet Union, their intelligence services will keep very careful tabs on business activity of elites as a form of political control. And, you know, this is something Alexander Cooley and, and many others have written about, and I wanted to understand that better. You know, the, the possibility that that might be a factor in this overall Trump-Russia story. Like, do, is, is there a possibility that the Russians know something and are using that to blackmail Trump?
1: As Davidson searched for another deal, Two young journalists at Columbia University happened to be investigating a very strange one in Batumi, Georgia, under the guidance of their professor.
0: There, there was there's an ongoing project at Columbia University Journalism School run by Janina Sednini, a, a great professor there and an accomplished journalist, to basically look at every Trump deal ever and try and understand who was involved, what are the trends, etc. cetera. And, and it's really a unique, you know, Janina believes and with good evidence that that she'll have the single biggest database of, of Trump business ever.
1: According to Davidson's reporting, the Trump Organization itself does not actually have a complete registry of all of its deals and what goes on in each one.
0: The Trump Organization, it's an interesting fact that they know remarkably little about what the Trump Organization has has done. As
1: you'll know if you listen to our previous episode, Sanini invited Davidson to speak to her class about his investigation in Baku.
0: I remember Janina's first words the day we met. We'd, we had titled my Trump-Azerbaijan story Trump's Worst Deal, and she said, the only thing wrong with that story is its title. That was not his worst deal. And she started telling me about Georgia,
1: Senini introduced Davidson to Manuel Andrioni and Inti Pacheco.
0: These two great Columbia University of Journalism School fellows had done a lot of research and were really pitching the story to me and, and basically saying, this is an amazing, amazing story. You got to look at this deal.
1: Davidson decided to join their investigation in June 2017.
0: What Manuela and Inti had done is just painstakingly gone through an unbelievable amount of documents around the partner that Trump had on the deal. This was a huge project involving thousands of pages of documents in multiple languages to understand the the various shell companies behind the entities that were paying Trump, who they were. Who really owned them, etc.
1: To understand what they went through, here's a flashback to Manuela and Inti from the previous episode, telling us about the quest to find the owner of the company Trump was working with. When they started to examine the financing of the deal, they encountered a web of offshore and limited liability companies that belonged to a bigger structure composed of several layers.
0: Companies that own companies that own companies.
1: This structure was a holding company called the Silk Road Group, and it was rather difficult to
2: make sense of. The main company was incorporated in the British Virgin Islands, which is one of the least transparent jurisdictions. And very common presence when someone's trying to hide something. So when Janina asked this, who owns the Silk Road Group? And we were like, well, we think Georgi Rameshvili, who's the chairman, owns the Silk Road Group. And that information is on their website. He's the face of the company and so on and so forth. And she's like, no, well, who really owns it? Do you actually have the document that says he's the owner? And I was like, no.
1: Sanini <laughs> so kept pushing them to find the document. But the thing about the British Virgin Islands is that you don't have to disclose any of your records to the public. That's why so many people register companies there. Finding the ownership paper seemed like a completely impossible task to Inti and Manuela. But Sanini didn't think so. She told them that if they couldn't find the records online the regular way, then they should comb through the subsidiaries for clues.
2: But there were like a hundred of them.
1: So they turned to an information database called Orbis, which was available to them through the Columbia Journalism School.
2: Orbis is an amazing database that has information about, like, all the companies in the world.
1: After searching for the main holding company, Silk Road Group SA, they were able to gather enough information to connect it to another company incorporated in Georgia.
2: The Caucasian Railway or something. The clue prompted them to search the Georgian Business Registry. Which was in Georgian. Georgian has its own alphabet. It's not like anything else, and it's completely incomprehensible. But thankfully, we had a thing called Google Translator plugin. So we started exploring the Georgian Business Registry, and it was amazing because they had so many documents there.
0: These company records would have even loan agreements and passports and ID numbers and pictures of the people involved.
2: In the end, we had downloaded like thousands of
1: documents. And the longer they sifted through the documents, the more companies they discovered
2: oh, there are companies in Georgia, there are companies in Malta, there are companies in the Netherlands, there's a company in Bahamas, there are more companies in the British Virgin Islands, there are companies in the U.S., there's a company in Canada. And it was like, oh my God, why?
1: By the time Davidson teamed up with Inti and Manuela, they already had a pretty good idea of what was going on with the deal.
0: That work was fundamental. That set the stage for what I was able to do. What I would say I was able to add is is the... the interviews, developing sources, finding the people who could really help us understand the deals. I mean, I think it's hard to do major investigative reporting projects on documents alone or on interviews alone. You really want the combination of the two.
1: Based on everything you've said, it sounds like the Batumi deal was much more difficult to track than the Baku deal had been.
0: Yeah, much more difficult to track, the the Georgia deal, because the Georgia deal was, I mean, what they say is they created a, a network of shell companies for purposes of tax of efficiency, and that any tax lawyer would tell me that what they did was not illegal or designed to obfuscate. But I found the exact opposite, that... Every tax lawyer I consulted, except for the one tax lawyer that they asked me to consult, told me that they could think of no good reason other than trying to hide their ownership for this. There certainly are tax reasons why you might want to register your company in another country, but nobody has yet explained to me why you'd want to register the same underlying company in three or four different countries and at each hop going to extraordinary lengths to hide who's the real owner and et cetera. It it was, um, so anyway, so that, it was a lot more work. That was much harder to do.
1: But even though Batumi was more difficult to track, the Baku deal seems to pose higher risks for the Trump organization, if there ever is any official scrutiny into these deals. Not only is there strong evidence that Trump's partners on the deal were involved with money laundering for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, But the Trumps were also much more hands-on in the construction of the Baku Tower than they had been with the tower in Batumi. And they received a lot more money for it. When they came into the Baku project, the building had already been constructed. But the Trumps insisted on gutting it and rebuilding its interior. They also added more elevators. Ivanka even traveled to Baku in order to approve everything personally. There's a photo of her standing in the tower, wearing a white hard hat and staring thoughtfully through the window. Given that this was a licensing deal and that the tower has not been used to this day, have I mentioned that, by the way, that the Baku Tower was built, perfected, but still remains vacant? Anyway, given all that, I wondered why the Trumps had gotten so involved in the construction efforts.
0: So the, the Trump organization had many ways of making money from these deals one way was simply selling their name. So in in the Georgia case, they just sold their name. And, you know, they had some kind of very soft rights to just make sure the building wasn't a total disaster and met the Trump view of what luxury should be. But they weren't offering, you know, ongoing services. They weren't part of designing the building or anything like that. In the Baku deal, it was more like the, the full package that the Trump organization would try and get partners to sign. The, the money came from licensing the name, but also from providing what they call technical services during the construction phase. So they were being paid you know, millions of dollars to advise the company how to build the building. And then in theory, if the building was ever completed, they would be paid millions of dollars for many years to come. My hunch is that the Mamadovs did want there to be a standing structure that was a Trump building on that site. There are other projects that the Trump Organization was involved with where really the evidence strongly suggest that nobody ever planned for the building to work. There are projects where developers never even applied for building permits or d- didn't didn't do the most basic stuff you would do to get a project off the ground.
1: There wasn't much done in the case of Batumi. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think they had the permits, but they did very little to make it actually happen. But I think in the case of Baku, this was something that you see in the former Soviet Union and other kind of oligarchic states this was, gonna, this was not a business deal. The, the idea was not, boy, let's invest in a project and try and make more money over the years than, than we've earned for, but, and profit from it. But it was meant to succeed. They wanted there to be a tower in the capital of Azerbaijan called the Trump Tower that everyone would know was owned by the Mamadov family, and that would give them some perception credit. So they were willing to spend an absurd amount of money. I mean, they built and rebuilt the whole project three times. It's unbelievably expensive. But I do think they wanted it built. That is my sense, that they really did want to complete the building, even if it was never going to be a viable commercial product. And the Trumps seemed perfectly happy with that. They'd make their money.
1: Not surprisingly, given how potentially incriminating these deals were, the Trump organization pulled out of both Baku and Batumi shortly after the election. But I was curious about the mechanics of how that worked. Did Trump have to give the money back?
0: No. No, he kept the money.
1: And how did he get away with that?
0: He certainly claims in the Baku case that they were in breach of contract. And and they, by the way, agree, I think, that the Mamadoff family has... Fallen on hard times. I mean, relative hard times. They're still unbelievably rich, but the kind of patriarch of the family, Zia Mamadov, he lost his position. He's no longer a minister, and all the rumors are that you know things are not going very well for him. Relatively speaking, uh, I mean, I'm sure his personal comforts are still quite nice, but but he's no longer a leading oligarch of Azerbaijan, and they seem to have been currying favor with with the Trumps, and we're trying to use their connection to the Trumps to gain more power in Azerbaijan, although that doesn't seem to have worked for them. So they agreed, yes, yes, you don't owe us any money. In the Georgia case, they were much more upset. And, and, you know, they do say things that suggest that Trump was in breach of contract and they could sue him but have chosen not to. I, I don't know that they've said those exact words, but they certainly say the equivalent.
1: Each of these two New Yorker articles by Adam Davidson received a lot of media attention. He's appeared on TV to discuss the articles, and this is certainly not the first time he was asked to talk about his findings as a podcast guest. Given the public response, I found it odd that he never received any reaction from the Trump administration. No justifications, no denials, not even an angry tweet. Look,
0: I think it worked out great for them so far. I mean, uh... It's a very crowded news environment. I'm incredibly proud to work at The New Yorker, and and obviously The New Yorker is, in my view and not just my view, one of America's great media properties. But I'm sure they assume everybody who reads it is probably already a Trump skeptic. And these are long, complicated articles. These aren't the kind of things that are going to be... You know, I hate to say this. It's sort of an awful thing to say. But if I was Trump's media advisor, you know, I'd tell him just ignore it. Let it go away. If you respond at all, that'll force a level of attention that we don't want this article to have.
1: And what responses did you get from the characters in your articles? I know that you tried several times before the publication of the Batumi piece to contact Mikhail Saakashvili, who was president of Georgia at the time of the deal and a major force behind it. And he didn't respond, only to lash out at you over Twitter afterward. Can you talk about that? Was there any other backlash?
0: His core concerns, not surprisingly, were the... There were a few sentences about his administration that were less than favorable, and and he didn't like that. Um, He didn't really have much to say about the deal itself. And then one of the developers, not surprisingly, was very upset about the article. I mean, you know, this is... It's fairly standard, obviously, for for people who are the subject of not very flattering articles to be upset about those articles. But other than that, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I feel like I got a very positive response from readers and, and, and others. I haven't heard anything from prosecutors or anything like that.
1: And is it frightening doing this sort of investigation into our president's finances? It is
0: frightening. Uh, it was Oddly enough, it it was less frightening reporting in Azerbaijan. You know, I I was I was told to assume that you know my my phone calls would be tapped, and and I scrubbed my computer and and did not use my regular email address because I was told to assume there was a good chance they would hack into my computer and and be able to read about sources and other things. And I did not see any evidence of this, but people said that. It, it was safe to assume that the intelligence agencies were following me in my travels around Azerbaijan. I mean the government certainly knew I was there. One government representative kept offering me women to sleep with, which is a very common tactic in the former Soviet Union.
1: In order to film you and get some compramat.
0: Yeah, yeah, to have compra yeah, exactly. So if they don't like what I write, um, you know, they send a picture to my wife or my boss or something. Obviously. <laughs> I didn't take them up on on the offer, although they were quite persistent, I have to say.
1: Can you tell me a little bit more about that? How did they go about doing this?
0: Well, my main government contacts I mean, he sent me pictures of a remarkably attractive woman and said that previous guests had very much enjoyed her companionship or something like that. I asked some people in Azerbaijan, you know, is this what I think it is? And they said, yes, that is exactly what you think it is. That is him offering you a chance to sleep with this very attractive woman.
1: So they're not being subtle about this at all?
0: No, not subtle at all. And and he offered a couple times. I said, no, no, not interested. And then one day I got to my hotel and two women walked across the hotel lobby and then got in the elevator with me as I was going up to my room. And one of them lifted her shirt and said do you want sex and it it is possible that they were just prostitutes looking for a client but this was a fairly high-end hotel and in my experience those kinds of hotels don't allow prostitutes to just freely approach someone so that made me suspicious that it was the government that that was intervening and asking them to let these women approach me although that in that case I don't I don't know for sure but that's fairly standard. I mean, I think as as a journalist, you'd almost be offended not to be offered such things. Not not just because you'd you'd think, oh, they don't think I'm that important a journalist. But in 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 my experience, I mean, I, I used to be Middle East correspondent, travel a lot in, in pre-war Syria and Iraq, Iraq after the war, etc. And and I think most journalists would tell you that totalitarian dictatorships or authoritarian states as Azerbaijan is are actually one of the safest places to work for an American journalist, obviously not for a local journalist because the government does not want anything to happen to you. You know, it would have been not in their interest to have an American journalist arrested or beat up or, or anything like that. So I felt quite safe in Azerbaijan, even if I felt monitored and, and just kind of a general creepy vibe And nobody on the Georgia story ever threatened me, nobody ever said anything, but it is, you know, when you're reporting on powerful, wealthy people with enormous means and and you believe there's a chance that they're known to be breaking the law and that you might be reporting stories that could make them less rich or make them go to jail. I mean, it is scary. I do find myself scared. I will be honest. I I don't know if I'm being realistic or not. So I had a friend this morning write me and worried about me. And, and I I felt like I, I didn't know how to answer, you know, is it realistic or not? I mean, I feel like it'd be foolhardy not to at least consider it, but I'm not aware of any journalists recently in America anyway, getting, getting hurt for doing this kind of reporting. And I'm, far from the only one doing it or far from the one doing it in the most aggressive way. So I don't know. I'm choosing now not to be that nervous.
1: That's The New Yorker's Adam Davidson talking about his investigations into the Trump organization's real estate deals. This episode wraps up our three-part series on offshore finance, money laundering, and the Trump Organization's deals in the post-Soviet region. If you missed the previous two installments, you can find them on eurasianet.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Masha brenner This episode was written and produced by me, with audio editing and production assistance from Rebecca Foley. I'd also like to thank Maria Mamina, Nathan Schiller, and Kelly Francis for their editorial guidance. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to me on Twitter at Masha U. Brenner. Thank you, as always, for tuning in.